When most people think of individuals with autism spectrum disorder, they think of children. As our children age out of their teens, they are adults for far longer than they were children, since there is no difference in mortality with their neurotypical peers. This presents new challenges for families, the service providers, and the medical community, as lifelong caregiving services will need to be provided in most cases. The current system is based on services for individuals under 21 years of age. Post-21 individuals fall into the enrolled versus entitled categories, and there are few services geared towards adults. Researchers are looking into this dilemma and how it affects the well-being of all involved. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakuski, your host, and with me today is Dr. Marsha Malley, Interim Vice Chancellor for Research and Graduate Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Good morning, Dr. Malley. Good morning. So could you tell our listening audience a bit about your professional background? So as you mentioned, I'm serving now as the Interim Vice Chancellor for Research and Graduate Education at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, but previously for the prior 12 years, I was the director of the Waisman Center at our university, which is a large interdisciplinary research center with a focus on developmental disabilities, including autism. I came to that position from history of research um, at the Waisman Center. I conducted longitudinal research uh, for the 10 years prior to um, assuming the directorship focused on autism and um, Down syndrome and Fragile X syndrome and other neurodevelopmental disorders. I'm a social scientist. Can you tell me a bit about the research you and your team have been working on? Our study is a 14-year, at this point, longitudinal study of adolescents and adults with autism and their families. We, we recruited about 400 families, 406 families of individuals with, um, on the autism spectrum um, who were the, the individuals on the spectrum were as young as 10 when the study began. And the oldest participant in our study is, was 52 years of age. And now they are 14 years older than that. So we have had an opportunity to collect data repeatedly over this 14-year period. We go out to where our participants live and we collect data from multiple members of the family, and we repeat this process every 18 months. And the study is funded by the NIH and is designed to track change in the characteristics of individuals with autism as they enter adolescence, as they transition from adolescence into adulthood, as they leave high school, as they achieve or struggle to achieve adult roles. And we also track similar changes in the family um, context in which they um, they live or receive their support. So what is the methodology of your study? We use multiple methods. We collect data directly through interviews with multiple members of the family, including the individual with autism, if they're verbal. We also do observations and have some biomarkers that are collected as well. So we're interested in family stress when families, especially maternal stress, um, when there's an individual with autism in the family, and we've collected multiple measures of cortisol to track changes in how mothers manifest their stress physiologically. We also have collected saliva from the individual with autism to measure their telomeres as another measure of cellular aging. We track their cognitive aging as well through standardized measures. So it's a multi-measure, multi-methodology approach to tracking change in the individual on the spectrum as well as primarily the mother as an indicator of the family over time. So I'd like to talk to you about your team's findings on the challenges faced by adults with autism. What are some of the factors that increase their independence and function? Well, what we've seen is that the social environment or the social context in which individuals with autism grow up and live has a very significant impact on the trajectory of their symptoms and in their functioning. Um, And I think we've seen these factors have an impact on their level of independence in adulthood. And let me be specific. 
what we find is that very important factor is inclusion in school early on. And so those children who are included in regular education classes, either fully or partially, are set on a trajectory, a positive trajectory in terms of the manifestation of their autism symptoms, their behavior problems, and their independence in daily living skills. And so if you take those three aspects, autism, severity of autism symptoms, severity of behavior problems, and independence in daily living skills, when children are included in regular education classes, it sets them on a trajectory to have less severe symptoms, um, less severe and frequent uh, behavior problems, and more independence. And another factor that we've seen increase independence in adulthood that is important early is positive parenting. Positive parenting where there's um, warmth and support and positivity in the parent-child relationship and closeness, those are factors that can set the same course, as I mentioned before, less severe autism symptoms, fewer behavior problems, and more independence and daily living skills. And similarly, when individuals become adults, a very important factor is their engagement in work. And we see that the more engaged individuals are in real work, the more hours and the more independent the work setting, the, again, fewer the behavior problems and the less severe the autism symptoms and the more independent functioning. So the, the message here is that the trajectory of autism, the outcomes that we see in adults can be optimized through positive parenting and inclusion in school and also later on including participation and engagement in work. These factors optimize the outcome. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Paul Rakuski, and I'm speaking with Dr. Marsha Malik, Interim Vice Chancellor for Research and Graduate Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're talking about how lifelong caregiving affects the well-being of families of individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So, Dr. Malik, do you have any examples of differing life trajectories of individuals you've been following all these years? Yes, it's a great privilege to get to know these families and these individuals on the autism spectrum because we learn about them in very deep ways. These families have shared intimate details about their child's life and their own family life. And, of course, we're very careful with confidentiality. And so the examples that I'll share with you have been changed a little bit in order to protect the confidentiality of the families. So one example is a woman who's now in her 40s. And when she was a young girl, she had very, very severe symptoms. She flapped her hands and she would spin around over and over again. She was constantly in motion and she would have severe temper tantrums if anything was moved in her house and threw things and wouldn't interact with strangers at all, would leave the room if other people came into the room other than her immediate family and had no, really no speech that was useful. And then if we jump ahead from her early childhood to her functioning when she's in her 40s, it's really a remarkable set of changes. She can speak in complete sentences and people understand her and it's an appropriate level of communication. And she's comfortable when people enter the, her home and she doesn't leave the room anymore and she talks to them. She makes people realize that she wants to be there and she wants to be friendly. Her mother said that although she's more at ease in the social interactions, it's still atypical. Her mother said something like, she's not like you or I, but she wants to be there. And so this notion of gradually increasing the desire for social interaction, gradually increasing the capacity for social interaction is one dominant trajectory that we see. And I should also tell you that she lives in an apartment on her own with some staff support. She has frequent contact with her family. And she holds two 10-hour-a-week supported employment positions doing clerical work. Has one friend, just one friend, and she has some significant health problems that require 
great deal of support from her physician, high blood pressure. She has diabetes, and she has an anxiety disorder as well. And so although there's wonderful things to think about the trajectory that she traversed, she also has limitations in terms of her health at a, a relatively young age and also continued um, anxiety. So, But that's a really good outcome. She is working. She's independent. She's got a friend. She has contact with her family on a regular basis, and she's blessed with a great physician who provides her the health care she needs. A different trajectory could be characterized by another individual in our research, and he's in his 60s, and his parents are both alive. They're in their 80s, and he continues to live at home. He has become less independent in his daily living skills than when he was younger, and he's gradually losing his either ability to perform these skills or willingness to perform these skills. So now he needs help from his parents on um, bathing and dressing and toileting, and all of this is becoming much more difficult as they get older as well as he gets older. So this is essentially a two-generation aging family. And as the family is less able to physically take care of him and provide him with transportation to get where he needs to go, his world has become smaller. He has very focused interests, which is characteristic of autism, and these interests, each one of them has remained his main interest for several years. So he plays a few keys on the piano repeatedly. He did that for a number of years, and then subsequently he became very fascinated with flushing the toilet, playing with doorstop springs. You can imagine what repeatedly playing with these doorstop springs day in, day out for a number of years, and that was then um, replaced by another set of interests. But these are very narrow interests. He never attended school because during his childhood there was no federal mandate for access to education for children with disabilities. Not only did he not participate in an inclusive educational program, he wasn't in school. He does attend an adult day program, and he's been there for the past 30 years, 25 hours a week, and transportation is provided for him. So he gets out of the house, and he has a social contact at the day program, but his life is getting more and more narrow. He has also anxiety disorder he has GI problems and sleep problems, and he takes five different medications for GI problems and his anxiety. So those are two fairly stark examples, but we do see that they represent a subgroup of individuals with autism as they move into midlife and older age. Since your research does cover a large group of age ranges in the adult population, what are some of the key transitions in life for these adults with autism? Well, I think the, the first transition that they face as they enter adulthood is exiting high school, leaving high school. And some individuals with autism leave high school with a high school diploma, and other individuals leave high school with some kind of certificate or they just leave. One of the expectations we had was that high school would be a stressful time for individuals on the autism spectrum and that leaving high school and entering the adult world would be a time of less stress. And we couldn't have been more wrong. It turns out that during the high school years, before the transition, individuals with autism continue to improve on average in terms of their autism symptoms and their behavior problems. Although improvement happens after the transition out of high school, it is much slower than it is during high school. There's a significant slowing of the improvement that we observe during high school. And it's particularly a difficult transition out of high school into the adult services world for individuals from low-income families because they may be disconnected from services. What we conclude from this pattern during the transition is that school provides a social context where there is social interaction, there's cognitive stimulation, there's opportunities for learning, and that when individuals leave school, if they're not engaged in day services or work, they may be less stimulated, they may be more disengaged, they may spend a lot of time in the basement playing video games as opposed to getting up every day, etc. 
So that's one major transition that sets the course for the subsequent transitions that all adults face as we grow up, particularly uh, vulnerable adults as well, like adults with autism. A second transition is the transition into a job. And what we've learned is that individuals with autism, it may take longer for them to learn the skills that are needed for a job, but it's often the case that their skills are well-matched for the specific demands of the workplace. And once those skills are learned and they're solidified, then individuals with autism can be fantastic workers. However, sometimes their symptomatology gets worse for whatever reason, and that often strains the ability of a work environment to tolerate individuals with autism, especially if it's a competitive job in the open labor market. And so we see quite a bit of turnover or job instability in individuals with autism if they have regular competitive jobs. The instability leads to a series of turning points or transitions that are not necessarily advantageous, that are disruptive, and they're stressful for anybody. I know one strategy that some families have adopted, and that is they seek more than one part-time job for their son or daughter with autism. And the theory there, and I think it's panned out for those families, is that if things fall apart in one job, then they at least have a second or third part-time job to fall back on while they seek an additional opportunity to round out their work week. We also see that women with autism seem to be much more vulnerable to losing their jobs than um, than men and having declining involvement and engagement in the world of work. And this, I wouldn't call a transition as much as a pattern over a, a long period of time. In fact, women are much more likely to decline in their vocational, in their work engagement than men. Men are much more successful. And that may be characteristic of sexism in the workplace or lack of tolerance of women having autism symptoms as compared to men having autism symptoms. It's quite concerning to have women with autism be much more vulnerable to losing their engagement at work than men. The final point I'd like to say about transitions during adulthood has to do with health. I know that this is a very important topic for the, this audience. Because our study has spanned 14 years and we've been following the same individuals with autism over this entire period of time and We've seen a number of deaths of individuals with autism, and this is not a statistical observation. This is just an observation, but of the 19 adults in our study who have died, they've died at young ages. We've seen five cases of cardiac arrest, two in their 30s, two in their 40s, and one in his 50s. We've had five cases of cancer that have led to death, and the aspect of these cancers is not that they're all the same type of cancer. We've had breast, spine, colon, liver etc., but they, that most of them were detected at stage three or four, and at young ages, two in their 20s, one in their 30s, and two in their 40s. Adults with autism are probably not participating, and they may not be going to the doctor as often. They may not be participating in screening, such as mammograms or prostate screenings, and generally, we, they may be more vulnerable to health problems because of lack of access or willingness or comfort with a physical exam. We've had three people die of medication side effects during the course of our study. Two others choked on their food and died, and then there were some miscellaneous causes of death. So I think we we need a much better understanding of the trajectory of illness in um, midlife individuals with autism and think together about how we might increase the access of individuals with autism to healthcare and the number of physicians who are trained and um, comfortable in taking care of people with autism. Thank you very much, Dr. Malik. That was great and insightful information for our listeners. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. My thanks again to my guest, Dr. Marsha Malik, Interim Vice Chancellor for Research and Graduate Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. 
be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.